Welcome to episode nine of the Rediscovery of Me Life Stories podcast. Today's episode is all about one man's journey through depression, suicide, and ultimately transformation. I planned my own suicide twice. I stockpiled drugs. I knew where I was going to go and stuff and where, what I was going to do and stuff. That was obviously a very, very bad day. Um, I used to live my life for an hour at a time. And if I could get through that hour, great, I'd move on to the, the hour after that. I honestly wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. It's time to be your best version of you. No fluff, no nonsense, only practical ways for you to be your own extraordinary. We learn from the real stories of real people who've been there and survived the life challenges that we all face. Remember, one person's story can be someone else's survival guide. Welcome to the rediscovery of me. I'm your host, Holly Hartley. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode nine of the Rediscovery of Me Life Stories podcast. As ever, it's utterly wonderful to have you here. Today's show is a candid, raw and brutally honest look at depression and the dark places that this can take us. I'm so grateful for my guest today, Andrew Hankin, for agreeing to come on the show and share his journey. I believe passionately that this is a story that needs to be told If you are affected by the issues discussed in this podcast, please make sure that you tell someone and seek professional medical advice. Neither Andrew, my guest, nor I are medical professionals. As you will hear in today's show, we're all struggling. Don't ever think that you're the only one. Let's get on with the show and listen to Andrew's incredible story. My guest on today's show has been on a journey both physically and emotionally. After university, he settled into a corporate banking job. Feeling that there was more to life, he left the rat race and set off on his travels round the world for a year. His corporate life resumed on his return. He got married, had children and, in his own words, he used to have what you might consider a perfect life. A beautiful wife, a young daughter and son, nice cars, dream home, regular holidays, the lot. In his 20s and 30s, he lost two friends to suicide and soon after became chronically ill himself. What seemed like out of nowhere, depression hit. He was then introduced to the mental health system, which is where he says two years of despair and frustration began. Battling with doctors, receptionists, GPs not listening, medications not working, psychotherapists, consultants, CBT practitioners, psychiatrists, hospitals electroconvulsive therapy or otherwise known as electric shock therapy and pretty much everything else under the sun. The impact on both Andrew and his family was immense. Feeling out of control and afraid, Andrew made a decision that would change his life forever. He decided to take control of his life and focus on the areas most crucial for him, his family and his health. Today, he runs Hero Transformations, offering help and support to people with mental health challenges and working to actively reduce global suicide. He is the very lovely Andrew Hankin. Thank you so much for coming on and agreeing to talk about your story. I think that a lot of people, particularly at this time of year, will get a great deal from hearing you speak. So thank you very much for for giving so freely of your time. Pleasure. Thank you. So let's let's start off at the beginning, which is always a good place to start. As you said in your own words, you had the perfect life. Yes. So I'd been through various roles in travel as a uh, high street travel agent and travelled the world a lot. And then I've moved across into corporate travel and then landed a job with a large American multinational company, uh, which was white labelling travel websites for big companies and it was it started off great mm. very good you know we were not quite there but pushing the sort of six figure salaries all the perks traveling around Europe and the UK and stuff and everything was as you would expect your sort of perfect dream life to be what you expect as you're growing up as a kid and stuff and all your friends and family are proud of what you've achieved and it all looked great so wife kids roses round the door wife kids we got married at a a castle out in cheshire kids were brilliant 
very sporty, very engaging, doing well. Um, yeah, everything was perfect. And then throughout the duration of this period in your life, you lost two friends to suicide. Obviously, I don't wish you to be indiscreet or anything, but how, how did that affect you and other people around you in your friendship circle? When um, we lost Stuart, at the time, um, everyone was very angry. Everyone looking back on it, you know, thought he had the perfect life. You know, very successful, global success, and no one could really understand why what had happened had happened. Everyone was very angry that he hadn't talked to us about stuff. And you you blame yourself for saying, maybe we should have done more, maybe we should have listened more, maybe we should have looked out for more signs and stuff. But the reality of it is there aren't any telltale signs people it's not like measles people aren't walking around with, with spots on their face and stuff it was the lack of understanding I think from myself and um, lots of our friends which I think just added to the confusion and then because you're confused you then sort of rebel against it and just get angry mm. and because we didn't fully understand we didn't explore it at all we just sort of wrote it off to almost like how dare he sort of thing mm. which mm. and I still think back to I remember my geography teacher who he he used to think and I think this goes back to limiting beliefs and what what you get taught as, as a kid and stuff and the huge responsibility that teachers have but he said that um, depression and mental illness was a western made-up problem he said that no one in Africa gets, um, wow. no one in Africa has, has issues with depression or anxiety or um, things like that. And so because you're, you know, we might have been 13 or 14, you go, okay, fine. Mm -hmm. And you just sort of accept that. Mm -hmm. I'm sure I've said between the age of like 15 and 18, those exact words. Mm -hmm. Which looking back on it, I'm horrified because. Mm -hmm. But I still think it's common now. I think you hear people say it now. You know, there are certainly people who I know that you would definitely hear say those words. You hear a lot of people say man up, mm. probably two of the most dangerous yeah, um, words, particularly uh, in England at the moment. And I, I, I don't know if, you know, giving him his due, maybe it was a generational thing. Mm. I don't know. Mm. Mm. I, I think at the moment we seem to be talking about suicide, in particular male suicide mm. and mental health. Yeah, you know, it's discussed far more widely now. Why, why do you think that is? Rightly or wrongly, I think it's become a bit of a buzzword. I think it's become a hot topic. The royals, whether you like them or not, um, have raised the awareness yeah, of sure, it. Sure. Um, going back to William and Harry, what happened after uh, Diana died, and they've talked about that a lot more and how that affected them, as well as being in the army. They've talked about PTSD and stuff. A lot of people are unsure how to deal with it and a lot of people acknowledge it and say yeah yeah we do need to do more and that's sometimes where the conversation ends and a lot of people you know are not a lot of people know you know suicide is predominantly males 70 75 percent males really yeah yeah a lot of people don't know that if you combine malaria conflicts natural disasters terrorist attacks that's still less in terms of numbers that are taken by suicide globally there's still a huge stigma around it. People still say commit suicide. Mm -hmm. It used to be illegal. Uh, lots of people still think um, it is illegal. I know there was a guy who, he got prosecuted in Scotland for attempting suicide. Um, and it's slightly different laws there and stuff. Rightly or wrongly, it is more in the public domain, which is a good thing. Absolutely. And it is being talked about more. I know, you know, from people are getting, you know, employers are getting wiser to it. Yeah. And accepting responsibility, actually. Our working life occupies such a significant proportion of our time mm -hmm. that it's only good and proper, I think, that, that, that they should look to accept responsibility. Let, let's come back to your story. So mm. that you say that your depression hit from nowhere. So tell us a little bit about what happened. And do you know what the cause was? Various doctors and consultants, etc., you can get it without any particular cause. Okay. There are areas of depression where you get it from uh, bereavement or um, trauma or childhood trauma or, or things like that, and it, it comes back. With myself, they didn't think there was one. I've had various discussions with people where we've discussed, back in the day, if you're a caveman 
and sent tooth tiger comes to your cave door, your brain gives you a load of chemicals going, you need to get out of here right now. This isn't good for you. Leave. Mm -hmm. And so you'd go, oh, some chemicals there tell me I need to leave. And then you'd leave. Mm -hmm. We've discussed whether if you're in a boardroom and you're getting a load of grief about EBITDA or various other sales things, your brain goes, here's a load of chemicals. You need to get out now. Mm -hmm. Because you're sat in a boardroom, you can't. So then your brain goes, did you not just get the message? And then gives you a load more chemicals. And then you then potentially can get the imbalance of chemicals in your brain, which can lead to things like that. But in terms of a particular trigger, no, there wasn't anything specific. I really didn't know what was happening. So I would wake up disappointed that I'd woken up. I would be very teary a lot of the time. I would, because I didn't know why I was feeling how I was feeling, I would then try and mask it with uh, mainly drink. Mm -hmm. I was struggling to interact with my own children. So I would become very snappy. I would shy away from family gatherings and stuff. I used to make up meetings that I had with work in other cities so I could go to those cities and hide and cry under a duvet. Mm. So I didn't have to deal with stuff. I go, right, brilliant. I like I say, I've got two days in Edinburgh or two days in London. I can just go and hide in the hotel. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't have to deal with life. And then, there's, you know, self-medicating um, around that. And then, you know, Lou picked up on the fact that I wasn't me. I wasn't myself. I wasn't the life and soul. I was avoiding social situations and then eventually persuaded me to go to the GP. So in terms of a really bad day, did, did you manage to hold down your job throughout this or were you signed off work? Or Throughout the whole time when I was ill, I had two jobs. I managed to hold down the first one okay and then I went, they suspended me on health grounds. Mm -hmm. You could either look at it as they didn't know how to deal with me or you could look at it as they probably thought it was best for me to take me out of a high-pressure situation. I don't know. Okay. There were other companies I'd worked for who were very good, but I effectively was managed out performance-related-wise, not being able to perform my duties and stuff, which from a business point of view, I get. It's, mm. you know, it's mm. that there's no simple solution. If you're trying to run a business, you've got someone who is not performing through no fault of their own, but it's an illness. Then, you know, I don't think it would be any different to if I had, you know, been in a bad car crash or couldn't perform certain duties or I had cancer or couldn't perform certain duties. I think it's the same. They were good in terms of they did all they could do within the parameters of the board, I guess. So did you take on another job immediately or did you have some time? No. So going back to when I went to the GP, I went through three GPs until I found a GP who took me seriously. Mm -hmm. The way that the GP system works is you get put on a drug, which was fluoxetine, and then they titrate that up to um, a high level. And if it's not working, they titrate you back down again. Mm. Um, and then you get put on a second drug, which I've since found out is a slightly more expensive drug, mm -hmm. which was citalopram. Um, and then they titrate that up and then titrate that down again. Mm -hmm. And then if that's still not working, which it wasn't, they then put you onto a third drug, which is a slightly more expensive drug, which was uh, metazapine, uh, which is then titrated up and titrated back down again. So that whole process takes around nine to 10 months. Wow. But then because you have tried three different antidepressant drugs, you are then eligible to be put forward to the mental health team. Okay. You can't be put forward to the mental health team until you've tried those three different drugs. That, that's obviously within the UK system because people do yes. listen to the podcast internationally. And it might be different between different trusts. So yeah. this is this yeah. is Trafford, I think I was under in Manchester. Yeah. So through throughout this period of, of trying these different antidepressants, did you manage to hold down your job? Did you have time off? Did you... So I managed to hold down that one. I was very much underperforming, but yes, I did manage to hold down that one. Okay. But whether I should have been driving around the country, possibly not. So what was a bad day like? How bad did it get? What was your lowest point? So I planned my own suicide twice. Mm -hmm. um, I'd stockpile drugs. I knew where I was going to go and stuff and where what I was going to do and stuff. That was obviously a very, very bad day. I used to live my life for an hour at a time. 
And if I could get through that hour, great, I'd move on to the, the hour after that. But it was a lot of hiding away from people. It's just the general, I honestly wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. Mm-hmm. Hopelessness, feeling of unworthiness, despair, not wanting to be here, burden, overwhelming. It was almost like a a pressure pushing down sort of your frontal lobe down over your eyes sort of things. It sort of manifested itself as 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 that really. And then you you just try and mask it with booze. And did you tell your wife how you felt? Could you share these emotions or were they just so alien or the shame that you felt you couldn't share them? So not 100% with Lou. She, uh, I think my mum had come down. I think she knew something was up. Mums are good like that. And was it my birthday? And we'd maybe gone out for a meal and I said I'd been... Hiding from work, I've been going to the cinema when I should have been at work. I've been hiding in hotel rooms and stuff. And so that was a big shock to mm-hmm. her. Mm-hmm. And it didn't make my self-worth feel any better. Mm-hmm. That sounds like an incredible struggle. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, tough. Yeah, very much so. Why do you think that so many of us in this kind of day and age are affected by these feelings? There's a huge amount of pressure in every aspect of what we do, whether it's pulling into a car park and you're comparing your car to someone else's car, or you're pulling into Aldi as opposed to pulling into Sainsbury's, as opposed to pulling into Waitrose, as opposed to dropping people off at school on what other people are wearing, and you're chatting to people about where you're going on holiday, and people want you to go round for drinks, you've seen other people's houses, and... It's almost like a badge of honour where people go, how are you at work? Yeah, busy, stressed, mental, really busy. And it's a, there is no room, I think particularly with men, we aren't very good at talking about this sort of stuff. There's no room for weakness with stuff. Mm. And this is, you know, this was before you've then got Twitter, Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook, and everyone's judging your own life on the four seconds that everyone else puts on of their life. Mm-hmm. So it's it's pressure, and I think potentially this is only going to get worse. It's pressure now from a very early age where we live. It's still the grammar school system, so there's people going through the 11 plus and stuff. So yeah. the, the pressure, even at such an early age, yeah, um, is on, as well as what shoes you've got, what coat you've got, you know, what phone you've got. All of this is then backed up with, you know, my kids don't watch TV, they watch YouTube. So then they're talking about YouTubers and mm. the money mm. they make. Mm. And it's... Mm. So much of it is material, is what we're saying, materialistic. Yes, it is very much materialistic. And I think also from a man's point of view, there is an element of an identity loss. Whereas, you know, previously you'd go out, hunter gather, you'd go out, you'd work. And then there's been so many different technological advances, whether it be the Industrial Revolution or other revolutions, or, you know, that I no longer take my son out to the field and teach him how to farm or teach him how to work down a pit or stuff or things like that. So I think we have slightly lost our identity and purpose is a big thing. Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's a huge, you know, what is my role in this life? Mm-hmm. Am I the hunter-gatherer? Am I um, the bring up the kids thing, I might, you know, what am I to various different people mm-hmm. and stuff. So there's an element of confusion with that as well. And then it's if, you know, if you take, it is a brave step to go, do you know what? I'm struggling. I don't know what I'm doing. I need some help. So what help did you get? Once I found a GP who is fantastic and we're still in touch now um, and she refers people to me and it's great. But she was very frustrated herself and shared her frustration with me of the system. Yeah. So, I could then get put forward to go towards the mental health system. You then go on the waiting list, Mm -hmm. which at the time I think was nine months. Mm -hmm. So then I wait nine months and then I go for an interview with two people in a room with no windows. And it was just the worst interview in the world to find out if I was ill or not. And then when they decide that you are ill, then you then get to go, okay, we we could try to get you some CBT and we'll try to get you in to see someone who can prescribe you the better drugs, which I think was another three to four months for the better drugs and maybe another six months for the... CBT, which statistically, 
um, talking therapies and uh, prescription drugs has a better outcome than either one or the other on their own. I then got put onto quetiapine, which is a antipsychotic drug, um, but has benefits for people with um, acute depression. So that then I did start to feel better. So I then got discharged from the mental health system. I then got this other job. But then I got ill again. And the crazy thing what happened then was I went back to the GP and said, I'm getting ill again. And they said, the drugs that you're on, the quetiapine, we can't touch because this is prescribed by the mental health team. Only they can change your drugs. The other three drugs that you're on, we can sort, but we can't change this one. So we need to get you back into the mental health system, which is another six month wait to get you back into the system. So they put you on a drug, which only they can take you off, but you have to wait to get back into the system. But it, but if you're getting ill again, you know, you, you, there's no way that you can be unique in this regard. Surely to God, if there's a six months waiting list, this is where things go drastically wrong for some people. So why is the biggest killer of men under 50 in the UK? Oh my gosh. So throughout this period, what was the impact of this on your wife and your kids? And your mum and, you know, wife, so, family and friends. obviously worrying for everyone involved. I used to not think... When the sort of cat was out of the bag, um, I didn't used to think I could keep myself safe on my own. Mm-hmm. So at this point, money's rather scarce. Lou's working all the hours under the sun. So on a Monday, my mum and dad would fly me up from Manchester to Inverness, pick me up. I'd stay with them for the week and then fly me back down on Friday evening. I'd then spend the weekend at home with Lou and the kids and then I'd fly back up on the Monday. Wow. Huge impact that had on my son. So he felt like he'd lost his dad. He was at quite an impressionable age. Uh, my daughter was a lot younger, so less so was aware of it and stuff. And obviously Lou very worried with everything. I do think women are made of stronger stuff. And, yeah, she's stronger than me. So at which point did you decide that that things weren't working, this wasn't working, that actually it was time for you to take back control? What what did it take for you to so have I, that change in kind of outlook? So I eventually got back into that system. They tweaked the drugs. They changed it to other drugs. I was on over a gram of drugs a day. Um, Gosh. So quetiapine, lithium, metazapine, Effexor, which is a derivative of Enlefexine. We tried going to the Priory, it's 300 quid an hour, just have a chat with someone. We tried private um, psychotherapy and we had tried ECT, so electric shock therapy, which when was first mentioned to us, you know, I've seen one flow of the cuckoo's nest, I mm. thought was... A bit out there, Lou said no straight away. My mum and dad obviously said no straight away because they are from that era when it was particularly bad. But I was, I had my first ECT on my, I think it was 39, 38th birthday uh, in Bolton, uh, which is a hospital which has since been shut down. It was very much a prison, the way it's run. It's a secure unit. There's barbed wire around everywhere. There were lots of fights, people getting carried down corridors like Ray Winston did in Scum. I I got left in my room after my first ECT. I'd fell over, knocked myself out, cracked my head open on a, on a sink. We eventually got moved to Trafford. There's only 21 beds in Trafford for the whole of Trafford, for men and women. And yes, I was ill, but there are a lot iller people than me. Mm-hmm. People with paranoid schizophrenia, various issues with violence. I was relatively numb to it, but, you know, I had lots of friends who came to visit me who couldn't quite believe what was going on and stuff. And I, there was various people who were violent towards me when I was in there. And I'm relatively big, um, Mm. but it was just, you know, I think I'd done nine weeks of ECT and nothing was really working. And I was blaming NHS, doctors, medication, the system, everything. And uh, it was a light bulb moment, if you like, but I thought, sod it, I'll do one last throw of the dice. This isn't working. None of this is working. I'll just take ownership of it 
and own the problem and see what I can do myself. What is it that's in you that enabled you to do that? And do we all have that thing, whatever it may be, that capacity to make that kind of decisive step change in our lives? What was that? Because if we could bottle that... Yeah, yeah, I'd be a rich man. I think we do all have that within us. I think your why, if, if you, for want of a better word, needs to be something greater than yourself. Mm-hmm. So I remember Lewis showed me pictures of Oscar playing rugby and he just looked lost. He's a great rugby player and he, he just looked lost at the side of the pitch, not engaging, shoulders down. It was a tough picture and that was... If it's not for me, then I'll do it for him. So I guess if there was a turning point, it was probably that. I think the finding your why thing is a life-changing, yeah, yeah, profound thing to do. It's really helped me in this last 12 months, you know, doing a massive change in my career. And I think that one of the key things that I did was I got my why mm-hmm. and I got total clarity on that. But my my why is, you know... Compared to what I, you've been through, it's very different. But so, so you made this decision. You you had this light bulb moment. Where do you even start? What did you do? So I've got a great friend who um, was. He sort of stepped up to the plate at the time. Not that other friends didn't, but he, you know, he was there a lot. Um, mm-hmm. He took me out a lot. He he got it. And I was able to speak to him about various dark times, which I wouldn't speak to Lou about. I think you do need soundboards who are slightly removed from the situation. I think if you if you share everything with your closest, dearly beloved people, it can only cause anxiety and they're too close to the situation. Mm-hmm. And he was very much, you know, this isn't working either. Yeah, I agree with you. The drugs aren't working. Let's try, you know, he's he owns some gyms. Have you ever thought, you know, you want to help other people? Have you ever thought of being a PT? Exercise has always been a bit of an escape for me. Mm-hmm. And you then start, you know, you do, you know, no one likes doing HIT or <laughs> boot camp or... What's HIT? <laughs> HIT, high intensity interval training. So, you know, short period of time, very, very, very intense. Stuff. But you feel better afterwards. I've stood in front of my TV of an early morning <laughs> with Sean T. <laughs> there you go. Thinking, I hate this. I hate this. But afterwards, feel great. Feel better. No one's ever finished a workout and gone, I wish I hadn't done that. Mm. And, you know, he, he encouraged me to to do that. So I, you know, you know, we, we, we did... Um, we train together. We, we've done rat races together, which is like 20 miles, 200 obstacles, that stuff. I've done 10 tough mudders. And then it was, it's it's also having someone who, who believes in you and goes, you know what, you can do this. Mm. I then trained as a PT. I did it in five weeks, which is the quickest out of all of my mates have done it. And became a level three PT and then started researching and investing in um, nutrition. Mm-hmm. The thing with nutrition is everyone knows what you're meant to eat. Everyone knows how it works. And everyone knows that if you want to lose weight, then you you you, you, you eat less things. And you off. Like, there, there is no you make that sound so I know. easy. There is, there is no secret that every diet works because it puts you in a calorie deficit. Everyone knows this. You've been inside my head, haven't you? Yeah, I have. Um, and so um, I started working with a guy who had also had issues close to, to home with, with suicide and stuff and he sort of bought into what I was trying to do he's been a big help as well and so we, we, we formulated an online nutrition system where it took the stress out of it for you so when you're ill your mental capacity for taking on new stuff is very much diminished yeah and so we wanted a thing where I said right if you want to lose weight or maintain weight or put weight on put your details in you press a button here's your meals for the week email yourself a shopping list and here's how you do it on your phone yeah simple yeah but nothing's taken away the reason why diets don't work is they go well you can't have carbs Mm. all i want to do now is eat warburton's toasters Mm. whereas this you know it's real world bacon sandwiches in there if you want a glass of wine it's in there it it 
it works sort of thing. So what I'd done then throughout this whole process is when I used to live hour by hour, I'd then put in coping strategies where I go, okay, well, let's see if this hour you can do a walk or the next hour you can do some shopping or the next hour you can plan your meals. It's then uh, moved into the mindset type of stuff where try and send an appreciation message because mm-hmm. I needed to send a lot by this stage, you know, at least one a day. So if I sent a message to my mum saying I loved her once a day, great. Or if I send, put a, a note in one of the kids' lunchboxes, that's, you know, that would do. And then I invested in various masterminds um, about meditation and goal setting. And it sort of grew from there until I'd got my sort of hero blueprint, as it's now called, and it's the basic things. So drinking two litres of water each day, exercising so you sweat, writing down three wins from the previous day. Because everyone measures forward. This goes back to the corporate life where people go, well, I want that deal. And I want that holiday to Mauritius. And I want that car. And everyone's constantly measuring forwards. No one ever measures backwards. Mm. And so, sees how far they've come. Exactly. So my three wins um, from yesterday was I played a game of FIFA with Oscar, which I lost. But anyway, that's fine. I read Jess, a bedtime story, and um, I agreed to go out for a couple of beers tonight. So that was my three wins from yesterday. So that gets written down in a book. Mm-hmm. So I have a book where at least three go in. Sometimes it's more, sometimes it's four, sometimes it's five. You shouldn't limit your wins. But then you've got, uh, this is where my math struggles. So three wins a day is 21 wins a week, 84 wins a month. You're knocking on around 1,000 wins a year. Mm-hmm. And it's just those little things... You'd have heard about the compound effect and mm-hmm. doubling your penny each day and, mm-hmm. and all that sort of stuff. And lots of people have asked me, you know, what is the secret? And the secret is doing small things consistently. It's really interesting because have you ever read Touching the Void? Yes. And I've seen the film. Yeah, brilliant film. Yeah, yeah. Really brilliant film. I'm a, a massive fan. And for me, there's a real sense of synergy with what you're saying with what Joe Simpson went through in terms mm-hmm. of when he crawled out of the crevasse and he had to get back to base camp. It was almost like he lived in very, very small increments. So he had to crawl 20 metres. Then it was the next 20 metres. And it almost, not, he called it, he likened it to game playing almost. But what you're saying is, you know, you went from living hour by hour to actually making these productive hours by hours rather than hiding going to the movies, hiding under the duvet, yeah. being proactive and doing things. But it, it can't have been plain sailing all the time. You of course know, it's not. Did you have your downs? And were there I, times when you almost quit? Yeah, and there's still days like that today. But that's where you go back to, and I've, you know, I've had people who I've worked with who then struggle, and I go, are you still doing the stuff we went through in the programme? Well, no, I stopped doing that. Okay. Yeah. Well, start doing that again, and then we'll see where we're at with it. So is that almost like in a kind of an AA approach in that it's there for life, you've got to do this then for life? Absolutely. It's a, the, the company as it, as it is now is Hero Transformations and the work that we do to get people from hiding under the duvet, jumping off bridges and surviving to changing them themselves, that doesn't stop. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not a superficial facelift mm-hmm. that you know I, that's done now I'll, I'll move on to something else it's something which it's 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 personal development mm-hmm. really mm-hmm. it's doing things consistently but but making you say it was almost turning into a game that's what we do we try and gamify people's lives you try and pick up five points each day yeah that's all it is yeah and you know sometimes and that's something so tangible that you can grab hold of crosses and sometimes I score two yeah and sometimes yeah. I score one a lot of the times I score three and a half to four and when I'm looking back over the previous month, because everything gets, you know, you can write it all down and it gets recorded. You go, oh, I wasn't feeling great then, but I was scoring one or two points. Yeah. But I was feeling good then, yeah. but I was scoring four and a half, five points. Yeah. So it is tangible. It's far from, from rocket science. Everything we do has to be simple. Yeah. Because otherwise it, it, it wouldn't get done. Do you have random acts of kindness in there as well? Um, we have the appreciation message. We don't have random acts of kindness as, as such. We have things which are split into sort of family and friends, focus, uh, finance, uh, fitness and fun. Okay. But this is something which got me out of a pit yeah. to where I am now. And it has helped now 117 other people do exactly the same thing. And it's being moulded 
on my experience as well, I've other these people's experiences as well. But when people um, leave the program, just because this has worked, if you want to tweak it, mm. then you know we are mm. all very, very different. Mm. It's loosely based around fitness, nutrition, and mindset. But if you want to swap out the, if you you know if you don't want to exercise to sweat each day, because not everyone does. Yeah, I get that. You you want to swap in uh, a random act of kindness for that? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, sounds great. How did you know when you were back? So my mate Bo, who I talked about then, he saw me one day walking towards him. So he's one of those, you know, sometimes you see your mate coming the other way. And uh, oh, I've got to do that awkward looking around now for a while until you get there. And he, he literally just pointed and went, you're back. And he said it was the way I was walking. So there wasn't... I feel uh, the need to burst was, into the Bee Gees Well, here. possibly. Um, there wasn't a, a particular thing for me that I, I thought that, but it was interesting. Said that that yeah, he 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 knew for some yeah for then. But there's levels of being back, and you know I'm I'm not naive enough to think that I was extremely ill, mm. and the stats would indicate that I will probably be ill again in the next ten to twenty years. But the difference is now I'm a lot better equipped to deal with it. Mm-hmm. But it's a constant, it's a constant process. It's not a constant worry, but I know that if I do the things regularly, then the odds of it happening are going to be severely less. Yeah. I've heard you talk before about loneliness, you know, in a particularly busy, overwhelmed world. And I think it's absolutely true. But I think it's ironic as well. You know, we live in a world where we're more connected than we've ever been before. But why is it that so many of us just feel so damn lonely? The connection thing is an interesting one. So I used to be very much like this, where you'd wake up in the morning and the first thing you would do is you would lean across, you would get your phone and you would go on Facebook and then you would go on Twitter. Then you would look on your emails. Then you'd look on WhatsApp. Then you'd look on Messenger. Then you'd look on the news so that you would think you are connected. And that false connection Mm. is the issue. Mm. Because then never thought of it like that before. You think you're connected, you're not. So never thought of it like that before. What I try to do now, and I'm by no means a saint. I live in the real world. I've got two young children running around <laughs> asking for ties or <laughs> jumping on the loo when I'm in the shower. You know, <laughs> you know, how, you know how it is. Um, and I bet you don't put that on Facebook. I do not put that on Facebook. <laughs> I do not. Though last year, I did put a picture of the kids on. Um, first day of school with our school uniforms I did caveat at the bottom this is two minutes after the massive meltdown we just had <laughs> but I'm not, I'm not taking a picture of that um, so if I can in the morning when I wake up and I will try and do this and I'll probably maybe do it four or five times out of the seven is I will try to meditate for 10 to 15 minutes yeah I used to have to do it guided uh, which is fine mm-hmm. um, and now it'll just be affirmations in my head going through trying to just sort my head out first Mm -hmm. um, and I try not to look at my phone until a lot later yeah I used to say nine sometimes it's a bit earlier sometimes it's a bit later when it's not as dark I would go would go for a run yeah but it's you need to make the connection with yourself first and then I make the connection with Lou and the kids and then yes I'm on my phone a lot but I'm aware of when I should be and when I shouldn't be. You talk as well about learning to make sense of things and and working out what it is that we're missing as individuals. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? And, you know, how do we make sense of it all and what your experiences have have taught you? And I know that's a massive question. It's a massive question, but I get asked it a lot and I have a stock answer. (laughs) (laughs) But but it's it's, it's a useful thing that people can do. So, and, And you may or may well have not have done this yourself, but I got introduced to an ikigai. Have you heard of an ikigai? I have heard of an ikigai, but perhaps not everybody has. So, so ikigai, they did some research, I can't remember, back in the day, and lots of people were living over 100 in an island uh, called Okinawa off Japan. They went across, did a research, and ikigai is a Japanese word for reason for being. Mm. And it talks about, uh, it's a Venn diagram, basically. If you just Google images, ikigai, I-K-I-G-A-I, it it will show you it. But it sort of asks you questions about your purpose in life. So 
when I was a travel agent, um, was I good at it? Yes. Um, was I passionate about it? Yes. Could I get paid for it? Yes. Does the world need it? Probably not. When I was driving around the country doing financial services, you could probably drop the passionate bit. So then you've, you've only got the other two sort of thing. And then in between the circles, it shows you, you know, whether this is a vocation or a calling, but you need those four things for it to sit right with you and help you, you know, as much as it, it's nice to, you know, work as a charity, if you're not getting paid for it, you're then going to have additional issues down the line, getting a roof over your head, mm-hmm. feeding yourself, mm-hmm. looking after your own children and stuff. You do need that element of it. I know people think money's the root of all evil, but there, there is an element that you do need some of it, it in It can be there. practical. Absolutely. Whereas now, running Hero Transformations, helping people with their mental health, trying to prevent suicides, can I get paid for it? Yes. Am I good at it? Yes. Am I passionate about it? Hell yes. Does the world need it? Yes, it does. Mm. So looking and hindsight's a wonderful thing. So looking back on it, knowing that the person I am now, selling financial services, driving around the country, is that really me? Possibly not. And going back to what we we're talking about previously, you know, triggers and stuff, you know, there's an argument that depression is your it's your body forcing you to take a break from the character you're trying to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and because there's that, if there's that disconnect, it will eventually make you ill. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that what happens with a lot of people, if there is that disconnect, then they get confused, then they get angry, then they start self-medicating. And then before they know it, they don't know who they are, mm-hmm. which obviously leads to catastrophic. I really, um, really want to do a podcast about finding your life's purpose. Yeah. Because I think that's so important. You know, and I, I need to think quite carefully about how how it is that I do that. But I think what you've just described there, and particularly about Ikigai, is really helpful. Really, really helpful. And I think people need practical tools that actually, when you don't know where the heck to start, you've got something that, you know, you can grab hold of and put one foot in front of the other. Exactly. And really that's important. what we're, we're big on in the programme. Everything we do is on a one sheet of A4. Yeah. Ikigai is one sheet of A4. Yeah. Your uh, weekly plan is one sheet of A4. Yeah. Everything's just... Because if it's a book, you're not going to... Yeah, not overwhelming. It do, it, yeah. And also with the Ikigai, it's not that, you know, I get people to go through and go, oh, yeah, I'm a refuge collector. Yeah, the world doesn't need it and I'm not passionate about it. it but it's just to give you... It gives you that understanding mm. of, I didn't know why I was feeling so hopeless mm. and not wanting to be mm. here anymore mm. and just in a complete mess. I didn't know why. And mm. it was that confusion and not knowing which helped with the downward spiral. Mm. Whereas if someone had gone through the car with me, I'd have gone, oh, okay, yeah, that makes sense, actually. Yeah. I could maybe start looking at stuff. It gives you hope. It gives you a tool. It gives you yeah, a, a way it gives you in. practical... You know, and actually, you know what? That might be the doorway to going in and exploring your place in the universe. Yeah. But hell, it's a doorway in. Yeah, yeah. That any one of us could grab hold of. I, th- I think the world's a bit nuts at the minute. I think it's a bit of a crazy place. Why is it that so many of us, and I think this is not this this is related to that kind of purpose in life, but we feel the need to burn so brightly, you know, that we feel so inadequate when we don't. You know, we talk about being confident and happy and having purpose and helping helping others. But I think, and I do include myself in this, I think we've got, you know, a bit of an addiction to success. I think we measure ourselves by the value that we add to the world, by our status, and as we've already suggested, by our material possessions. Mm. What the heck is that all about? What You know, what's going on? How is it that we kind of, how can we manage that within ourselves and within our lives? It's a big question. <laughs> You're the guy to answer it. <laughs> yeah. For my next trick. Um, <laughs> so I think it it's conditioned from a very early age. And I think it's not dealt with until it's too late. So on a very basic level, you sort of get, you know, you're born, you get told to go to school, you get told to be good, you get told you must have qualifications... Not everyone's cut out for qualifications. Mm, Absolutely. You then get told, you go and get a job, you work hard nine to five, Monday to Friday, and then you'll slowly work your way through the ranks. And then when you're 60, 65, 70, 75, who knows, you can have like a little bit of time at the end where you can go on a cruise and then that's it. So that's indoctrinated to you at a very 
early age. And, you know, as much as there are some amazing entrepreneurs out there going, do you know what? There might be another way. And they get shunned and they get told, no, that's not the way. You have to do it this way. And then there is the fear of bankruptcy, IVAs, um, being viewed as a failure, you know, homelessness. Everything is run around fear. Mm. And because the world is such a small place now, even when I went traveling back in 99 around the world, email was just coming out. But, you know, mm-hmm. when I went, my mum and dad didn't expect to hear or see me for the next 12 months. But <laughs> yeah. actually, I was sending home old cinema, uh, cinema film, uh, camera film, and they were, you know, developing, yeah, developing. pictures <laughs> and showing a bottle of wine to see, see where I was on the Inca Trail and stuff. Whereas now, you know, people are traveling around the world and getting an Instagram filter with the old yellow sort of Indiana Jones pictures around the side to sort of, you know, it's such a small place. And because it's such a small place, everyone's aware that you've got internet billionaires. Everyone's driving Lamborghinis, which they're not. They're hiring them for a day mm. um, to give the impression of success so that they could then sell you onto this dream of, of, of X, Y, or Z. Um, and there's just a huge amount of, pressure to succeed and do well and it's this goes again this goes back to another piece of work that we do around your around your values and values are hugely important to you Mm -hmm. and it really opens people's eyes to actually i'm not after a lamborghini there's nothing wrong with lamborghinis don't get me wrong i have a ford focus with lamborghini stickers on it (laughs) um that's as close as i get um but um, I am very far from being a wealthy man, but that's not what my purpose in life is about. It's not what my values in life are about. I get a buzz from helping people. I get a buzz from dropping off and picking my kids up. And I'm there for every rugby match. Jessica plays rugby as well. I'm there for cross countries. I'm there all the time, (laughs) Um, which... Yes, I'm no longer going on holiday to the Maldives. I'm not going on safari to South Africa. I'm not going to Vegas for the weekend. So that that isn't happening. But that's not what I'm after at this point in my Mm. life. And I'm not saying people shouldn't be after that because I was after that and was more than happy doing that when I was 24, 25. Mm. But I didn't make a conscious decision that that's what I was, was looking for. Whereas now... I've been asked on a number of occasions to go back into the corporate world to, you know, get an 80K job. I just don't want to do it. But I've made a conscious decision not to do that. You know, if that's what you want, then great. But don't do it because that's what you've been told that you're going to do, because that's how life works. You just need to be. And it's tricky because everyone is telling you to do stuff and everyone likes to be part of a gang. No one wants to be different. No one wants to be out on their own. Mm. And there's a great video, and I can't remember who did it, but if you just stick into YouTube, um, Eagles and Ducks, and it talks about ducks all sort of doing the same thing and going, wow, yeah, this is brilliant. And, and, and sort of there's a safety in that, whereas the eagle is just above, soaring over everything, not getting involved, feeding his family, going out, only take what he needs, come back, feed his family. And it's just a, it's a video, which and I've seen a lot of videos, which has really stuck with me about... You just have to do what's um, what's right for you at the time. Okay. We'll make sure that we link to that in the show okay. notes. Just before we wrap up, what advice would you give to anyone who's struggling at the moment? And I want you to imagine that they're at the other side of the speaker listening to this podcast. Talk to them. What would you say to them right now? You've got to be honest with yourself and you need to ask yourself the question, is what you're doing now working for you? And whether that be hiding it, self-medicating, sticking yourself on a waiting list, if none of that is working, then you need to talk to someone. And you may not want to talk to your wife, your husband, your, your children. And I get that. And I didn't either. But you will have friends who will listen. And not only are you helping yourself, I pretty much guarantee it, they are probably feeling the same, similar slightly worse, slightly better than, than you are. And then you will realise that it, you're, you're not alone. There are, everyone is going through this for various different, you know, levels. It's not a competition. Everyone is, is going through this. But 
you've got to have the honest conversation with yourself that if it's not working, you need to change it. And, you know, there are various organisations out there. It, it doesn't have to be the GP NHS route. There's, you know, Andy's Man Club. There's Samaritans. There's your friends down the pub. There's your friends at football. There's Zero Transformations. You know, there's lots of organisations out there. But it's, it's just, and it doesn't have to be as divisive as my one last throw of the dice. You just have to keep trying different things. If what you're doing at the moment isn't working, try something different. Thank you so much for coming on and for sharing so openly. I, Christmas is a funny time of year and I think yep. people will really benefit from hearing everything you've told us today and shared so openly. So thank you so much. Pleasure. I imagine that quite a lot of people would want to be able to get in touch with you and find out more. So I'll make sure that we include at the bottom all of your social media hand- handles, I believe. Handles, they're called handles, yes. that's cool. And also links to the website as well. But Perfect. Angie, thank you so, so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. And Lovely. A privilege. Thank you. Let's conclude by asking ourselves Andrew's question. Is what you're doing now working for you? It's a pretty big ask to be brutally honest and answer this with candour. Some of us might be left floundering as we simply might not know on the surface. But take some time, think deeply, be brave and be as honest as you can. Sometimes it really does take time to look deeply in the mirror. What Andrew's journey shows us is that seeking contentment, peace and happiness is a lifelong quest. And that's okay because we're all travelling this road together. Andrew's story and those like it don't always make for easy or comfortable listening. But that doesn't mean that we should shy away or close the door. Quite the opposite, in fact. Stories like these need to be told and shared widely so that those of us that are in dark places can see and hear that they are not alone. As Andrew says, don't be deluded by the false sense of connection and life perfection that's peddled on social media. It's not real. We all need to be strong enough to break down the falsehood that is social media perfection. We all need to be vulnerable and just be ourselves in all our flawed glory. Go out there into the real world, ask for help, help others, put one foot in front of the other and just keep going. You never know who you might help in the process. If you've been affected by the issues discussed in this podcast, please make sure that you tell someone and seek appropriate professional advice. A list of phone numbers can be found in the show notes. Make sure that you check them out at rediscoveryofme.com, where there will also be a link to all of Andrew's contact details too. I really hope you enjoyed this episode of the Rediscovery of Me Life Stories podcast and that in some way it's added value to your life. Thank you for joining me. I've been your host, Holly Hartley. Please make sure that you tell everyone you know who might benefit from listening all about the show. It's free to listen to, of course, in any app that supports podcasts. Make sure that you click like and leave a review. I'll see you on the next edition of Life Stories, where we'll explore what it takes to embed fitness into our lives. Remember, one person's story can be someone else's survival guide. You are enough.